I am Stuart Cox, and I'm a producer based here in Toronto with my company, Antica Productions. Thanks for coming in. Pleasure. Um, most, like, when when I first met you, you don't remember the first time I met you, but I, I met you at... Um, Fuse Marketing. Fuse, okay, so you do remember. Because well, you reminded me. Okay, the first did time I, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a room of 30 people. It was it was a, it was a filled room. We, yeah. we, were, we were talking about... Uh, um, the when Jack Downey fund yeah and and the secret path and um, I, th- I think in the room I googled you and I go oh shoot this guy's been this this guy has done television this guy's you know big time <laughs> CBC guy you know Dragon's Den and stuff um, but you you've spent you spent what the better part of two decades working at the CBC or working in television yes I'm, I I shudder it's been three decades of, in television, about two decades three at CBC. De- wow. Yeah. Where did you get your first start? Was it at CBC, your first start no, in television? No, my first start, I was a terrible student in university. All my <laughs> friends were going to grad school and professional school. Okay. And I'd always really wanted to work in television. That's I've been my real goal. Okay. But I thought I should get a degree first, but did a crappy job at it. And um, I got a job during reading week volunteering at a documentary uh, filmmaker. Uh, um, mm-hmm. That I, I knew just by calling around. Okay. And I happened to, to read in the newspaper that day about a Canadian who'd been shot in Brussels. What? Um, a guy named Gerald Bull. And he'd been killed because he was designing a giant space cannon for Saddam Hussein. And because oh. I had read this article on page 16 of the Globe and Mail, small yeah. thing, I, sa- I, I knew more about this. I pitched it as a story. Uh, oh at this office, and they said, "Wow, that's amazing! I hadn't heard of it. You could develop it for us this week." And this week, yeah. <laughs> while you're working for us, and it became um, a project. It got me to uh, to France to MIPCOM to the big TV festival that summer. And although we ended up losing out on the project to Kevin Spacey, who did a film for HBO on the subject. Oh my goodness! Um, I sold another documentary, and I was there about UN peacekeeping. Yeah which then got me over to Iraq shortly thereafter for the first Gulf War. Wait, and, and this is during Reading Week? Well, yeah, it was my last year. Reading okay. Week. Reading Week, I did the development. Then I graduated, and they hired me to keep developing it because it was moving along. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and then, uh, so then I was in Iraq. I was there for three months, almost got killed, almost got married. It was this whole, it was a long story. Wait, 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 wait. wait. You, you just can't say you went to Iraq <laughs> and, and almost got married and almost got killed. Yeah, not in the same, <laughs> but yes, yeah, in the same period of three three months. So when were you, when were you in Iraq? What years were this? I was... Uh, um, so, if you remember the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, yeah. uh, after, um, it was right after the Iraqis had left Kuwait. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went and started filming the oil fires. If you remember, Saddam yes. had blown up the entire. It was a horrific and beautiful sight because mm. the oil fields in Kuwait are so rich. There's basically a a well every 750 meters. I mean, and they're just dotted like a like in order right across the desert. Wow. And he just put explosives on the top of everyone yes, and I blew it up. Yeah. So you just had these these symmetrical fountains of flame. Wow. And then these dark, stygian, dark clouds of oil that would then rain oil down in the desert Ooh. and block out the sun. Yeah, yeah. I think and I um, uh, they had to improvise. It took them months and months to put them all out. And uh, they would come up with these... Uh, in the end, there were some Canadians that were over there, along with some guys from Houston, had to design these whole new ways of capping the wells, mm-hmm. which involved arriving with these um, sort of things that looked like Civil War 
uh, battleships, like get, you know the monitor, like getting like with the metal sides, and basically they built out of sheet metal, yeah, and just to deflect the heat and get close enough so they could bring a chimney on top of to draw the heat away from the base of the well, so they they could shoot foam to try to cool it down enough to then cap it to stop the oil from coming up. Wow! And there were thousands and thousands of these wells on fire all over Kuwait. Mm-hmm. So it was a very long. Laborious and you're process. filming a documentary about these. Actually, we only filmed that because we were waiting to get our visas to go in with the UN peacekeepers who'd been sent into Iraq. Ah. And we finally got our visas with the first U- We were going to go in with the first UN forces mm-hmm. going in. And the UN, then as is now, doesn't have a rapid, rapid deployment force easily available. Sure. They ended up sending security guards from New York, from New York, from the United Nations. Security guards. Yeah, because they had to have, they were in uniform. Sure. So they showed up and like literally like there's Baghdad, the war has just ended. And if you remember at that time, Baghdad was hit by surgical strikes. So you sort of mm-hmm. go like five or six buildings and there'd be this building caved in because it had been targeted by the uh, yeah. the coalition at the time. Um, and uh, we stayed, moved into the Palestine Hotel with security guards and we were one crew. Uh, it was myself, my producer, I was the researcher, uh, Cameron Sound, and we had to wait a two or three weeks to get up into Kurdistan because that's where we were going to film the first deployment. Oh, wow. So, what it's a very, it? very long story. And actually, my friends who are hearing this are going to know this is one of my dinner table conversations. Yeah. There is a one-hour version of it. <laughs> I will <laughs> I will say succinctly that these were in the days before you got war training. Sure. Uh, at one point, we were um, stuck in the hills and the Revolutionary Guard were ready to shoot at our vehicle uh, and the engine died. This is the almost getting killed part? This is the almost getting killed part. And uh, there was, a because we were in the hotel alone, um, and I had done a black market exchange of uh, Iraqi currency for, for American dollars. Okay. Which was actually, they were hanging people in the squares for this at the time. Shh. But young and stupid, I think I was 21. Yeah. Um, we were basically millionaires overnight for as long as we had the Iraqi dinars. And so we were dining in the restaurant who had not converted their... Um, their prices over to what with the actual black market rate. So you could order like vintage balls of French champagne. They weren't all gone yet mm-hmm. for the equivalent of like a dollar. Wow. So basically it ended up with like, getting hammered a lot in this restaurant because yeah. they were out of fresh vegetables, but they had lots of French lots wine of left. Lots of French wine. Yeah. So anyway, one thing led to another. But the that was my first experience um, with uh, journalism and television. And I came back and then out of that parlayed that experience into a job working for a show called Midday at CBC, which was their noon chat show. It's almost like a like a downer. <laughs> well, it was a little bit, I have <laughs> but to it's say. Safer. It was safer. Like I really realized that when I finally got out of there alive and I like you know, young men have a sense of immortality. Mm-hmm. And it, it had my ignorance had been, I'd been disabused with those. I was going to live forever. My goodness. Yeah. Wait, so, so I, the almost killed part, what's, where's the almost married part? It really is too long a story. Another time. <laughs> Another time. <laughs> well, was it that you wanted to get married or this was like forced if you want to live? I can't tell this. My friends will kill me. It just, it, no, it really is too long a story to tell. Suffice to say, I ended up at a party where I was reminded of that episode of MASH. Most people won't remember this, where... One of the guys on the show inadvertently marries a Korean woman from drink by drinking from the same dish. Oh my! And I wondered, 
am I getting married here? Because there was a big feast and I was seated at a table with a woman that I met a couple times and the family are giving me gifts. And oh my. I wondered what I got myself into. Yeah. And you've never been to Iraq since? No, because there was actually even a mail ban afterwards. He could not send letters, so it was no contact with Iraq for years. Wow. It was pre-internet days, obviously. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Yeah, it was a great experience. Like, like exciting. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm very curious. Um... Have you? Do you do any of that sort of reporting or storytelling? Yeah. Like, have you done that since? Yeah. Yeah, many times. Okay. Uh, currently, right now, I have a project I'm uh, doing. I can't give many of the details why it hasn't been publicly announced, but it's uh, in northern Nigeria with the girls who were mm, um, yeah. kidnapped by Boko Haram. Yeah. So we've been filming there for a year. Wow. Um, I have not been, but the people I'm working with are, have been there repeatedly. Yeah. I'm also doing a, currently a project in Syria as well. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, it's very much. Um, I mean, these are important stories that need to be told. I think so. Yes. And um, it's, I think, a lot of people's careers they go in different cycles, and I've been lucky enough to kind of be able to cycle back into the stuff that got me excited about being it in the first place mm -hmm, in, the, in the business. I'm, I'm gonna. I want to come back to that stuff. Um, that 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 you that your team has done in both Nigeria um, and Syria, but um, you come back, CBC, yeah. yeah, midday show, midday, and then I got hired at. What, were you producing that? What were you? Doing I was. That? I was a producer. I was hired as a producer, which was great. I okay. mean, it was actually like insane amount of money for me at the time. I couldn't believe it because um, you got hired in at the union rate. It was a summer filling job, but the union required you to be paid as a producer, which was yeah. like. It was like $52,000 a year per, like I wasn't getting paid. I was there only a couple of months, but it was like, wow, I could actually make serious money. This. Yeah. I hadn't made much money when I was over in Iraq. No. Uh, except for that currency, illegal currency. Except for the illegal currency. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But it was like, wow, I could actually like, like live a decent life. Like, yeah. uh, wow. So, um, and it was amazing because as opposed to the other projects I worked on, which had taken a year or two to develop and mm -hmm. finally get on screen, I was writing things and cutting tape and putting stuff out every day, which was uh, tremendously um, validating. Because at that time, I mean, there was no, no YouTube or anything. You know, like To get access to quality cameras and audiences, everything went through the networks. Sure. So to have that feeling I could speak to. And this show at the time was getting 300,000 people at lunchtime. It was a big that's deal. A lot, that's a big show. It was a really big show. It was when Valerie Pringle and Ralph Ben Murgy were hosting it. Oh, yeah. So it was very, it was a big, big show. And I was very, very lucky to get to work with them. Really great producers. And it was, we were in the same offices as The Journal mm -hmm. with Barbara Frum. Yeah. So it was, we were their kind of their spinoff daytime show. Mm. So we would, there were all the big journalists all sitting there who were going off and doing all the big stories. Yeah. I remember there was a, if you stayed late, they would come through with a meal cart to feed you. Ah, hot meals. Nice. Wow. <laughs> like this is like this is like fifty two K plus hot meals. <laughs> hot meals, it was amazing. <laughs> I was actually reading there was like this is like the way things used to get done in drinks. It used to be a drinks cart that would go through. I don't know, C B C but you know, Time magazine and places like that would have a drinks cart. But the journal had they got rid of it uh, shortly after I joined the CBC because of <laughs> hot meals. So you could stay and work. These kids that are staying around. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. Nice. When did you, I, I, I read somewhere you, you spent a lot of time with, with the news department. Yeah. Um, and in news. Um, when, when did you start doing things like that? Well, basically, so I went from midday. Mm -hmm. I worked at a, v a business show called Venture 
uh, with Robert Scully, uh, Bob Scully, two of his friends, okay. uh, which was a big show in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to the National um, ah. in 94, 95. Who's doing the National then? Uh, so I was Peter, obviously. Okay. And then when I, Pam Wallen was there for a yeah. year when I was there. Then Hannah Gartner. And Hannah was there. Uh, and I'm trying to think who came in. I think I was gone. Hannah was still there when I left. Yeah. So Peter just retired. Yes. Last year, yeah. I, I want to say. Um, I've heard two things. I, I've heard... The the people that uh, have work or have worked at the CBC have nothing but praise to him. And then you talk. Then you listen to the Jesse Browns of the world, yeah, who uh, who won't bash him, but you know has this. Well, will insinuate that there's other things about Peter Mansbridge. Um, tell me about the Peter that you knew. I I Peter I knew was the Peter that people talk about in glowing terms. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the the moment that I, you know, often with someone who is in the chair like peter is um you don't necessarily know why they're there every night because some nights you say well they're just reading the news and there's in the in the britain they just call them news readers yeah peter was a it wasn't as a working journalist 9-11 was the where we i I was working that day Mm. worked i and worked basically without sleep as did peter and everyone else for weeks and watching him as a live journalist process, I can remember one particular moment where a guy, very well-respected guy, was on saying, at least 50,000 people were killed because uh, we'd just seen the towers fall. At least 50,000, maybe more. And there was this kind of pause, and I was like, yes, of course, maybe many, many more, yeah, 50,000. Yeah, yeah. Minimum figure, re- as reported. Yeah. And Peter said, no, we have to pause there. And everyone's feeling this incredible emotion. We didn't know if the world was coming to an end that day. And he just was very calm. We don't have proof on that figure. And then there was all the speculation. And there was serious speculation for a chunk of time that it was a whole host of other people than who it ended up being. Um, I had been doing, when I was at the National, we did the, uh, and Peter was so good at, at, at Again, live, like real time. It's it's like the equivalent of a professional athlete, yeah. But at a much more important level. I mean, basically, not like disseminating fact from fiction and playing the journalist and keeping your your nerves calm. We had. I was also working at the National when there was the bombing of the McMurrah Building in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City uh, bombing. Okay. And was I was that the Unabomber. It was no. That was so at the time. So this. All we saw on the news was this explosion had gone off mm-hmm. at a federal building. If you remember, it was awful. It was the daycare was at the bottom of the building. So a lot of children were killed. It was one of the first mass bombings in the U.S. It was several years before 9-11. And I remember working with Peter that night. And again, people were coming on and blaming the Japanese Red Army because there had been some sarin attacks in Tokyo. Yeah. And that was, oh, very credible. It must be the Japanese Red Army and yeah. leftists. And he didn't let it go down. It turned out to be a lonely guy, uh, Timothy McVeigh, I yeah. believe was the name. And he was just one of these militia guys, basically uh, someone who probably wouldn't be out of place marching in Charlottesville today. you know. Um, and we didn't, our reporting didn't go down the road of naming all these other, it took days for them to even figure out like how it exactly had done and, mm-hmm. and who it might have been. And our coverage, you know, with Peter at the helm at CBC was like some of the best in the world, um, and, and particularly in those moments. I mean, that ability to uh, use your years of experience and keep, you know, 
still today, people turn to television for when big things happen. Yes, yes. And, you know, that role is so important for the public and for discourse. And I think Peter did that particular, I mean, did many other things extremely well, but that particular thing is the thing that, to me, lifted him above, head and shoulders above almost anyone who's ever done that job. A lot has changed, um, it seems. Like, it, it seems today there's more of a rush to give people an answer or the answer, mm. whether it's true or not. Um, you know, whether it's a, a, a race to ratings or a race for clicks or mm. eyeballs, however you want to frame it. Um, what, 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 what are your thoughts on, on, on this change or do you, or do you see things differently? No, I, you know, there was a point I can remember when, again, working at the national where we were doing, um, we were showing some filming of some shelling on the Golan Heights and, um, it was weird because where the camera was positioned, mm -hmm. you would see the puff of smoke, and because it was of light travels faster than sound, there'd be a delay, and then you'd hear the bang. And I was a young producer, and I said, oh, we could just advance up the sound because we're uh. not going to wait the five seconds for the bang to happen. I was going to look silent. Mm -hmm. And I got the biggest dressing down. Like, wow. you do not screw with so source tape like that. Uh, and this big lecture, I was like, well, okay, what we're doing here is more than just storytelling. There's yeah. actually, like, there's a factual basis of what we're doing that's extremely important. Mm -hmm. And some people would say, if, and the truth is these days, if they heard the bang at the same time as the, the bomb went off, the explosion, they'd say it's a fake because the sound has to travel, right? So, yes. Uh, yeah, look, that's I think it's really, there's a, a tremendous amount of pressure, and I've worked daily news, um, and I know the pressure to match, mm -hmm. particularly when you've got someone you know reporting in one outlet something that something has happened and you have a duty to inform your audience you know there are reports out there of whatever something is is happening and by doing that are you essentially just spreading the rumor mm. yeah um and it's tremendously difficult to know what that bar is where it becomes clearly so reported you have to jump in um i think that you know most of the people I mean, excluding the fox news of the world but most of the people who work at you know, CTV or CBC News Network in the daily business uh, take take that part of the job extremely seriously. Um, and but they know that if, like, for instance, it's a it's a common thing that you know there was something in the Star recently where they said we're not going to link to the video. Oh, you know what it was? It was the woman who was throwing poop. Did you read about the, the, Tim, yes, the Tim Hortons yes, story? Yes, Tim Hortons. Yeah. So they said, we're not going to link to the video. Really? You can Google it if you really want to <laughs> see it. <laughs> and that is the other part of the assumption, right, is that, you know, people are two screening through three, even on a, like, a, you know, um, <laughs> newspaper that there, you know, there's a, there are levels that you're going to search. Like, I always go to look for the pictures people if they don't have it. Yeah. Maybe, the, maybe that paper doesn't have the rights to it, so I go look for the picture somewhere. Ah. Um, so there's, you have, you assume that multiple layers. So probably you have a duty to help people sift what's been verified and what hasn't been, mm -hmm. but without getting sucked down that rabbit hole of, um, of fake news. Really. Yeah. Um, there's also this, uh, columnists. So there's columnists and journalists. Mm. Um, and it seems that columnists these days are getting more prominence um, not because the average casual viewer or reader can decipher the difference between a columnist and a journalist, 
but because the columnist has that quote unquote freedom or um, flexibility to say what they think rather than report on a story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, 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 we're getting more of this is what so-and-so thinks rather than here's what is happening has happened. Um, and I'm, I'm, and I don't know whether that is healthy for Western liberal democracies. I'm, I'm just curious what you, what you think. Yeah. You know, it's very, I mean, the newspapers pay columnists, the, pro, the, the high profile ones, a lot more than they pay the beat reporters because people are drawn to them. I mean, people may hate Margaret Wente, but they're drawn to her at the globe. I mean, they, mm. um, I think, you know, the the duty of a newspaper working with a columnist is the columnist cannot misrepresent the facts. What conclusion you draw from those facts, mm-hmm. that's kind of the gray area where I think op-ed works extremely well. Mm-hmm. They can see patterns, perhaps, or make philosophical points. Um, look, I mean, there was a study I just saw recently that, um, they've just, that the ad companies have determined that we're in peak media. There literally is no more time in the day because we can between consuming stuff off your phone or off the TV or off your smart speaker in your bathroom like we just basically there's no there, we're, we're uh, we sleep the rest of the there's time no like, quiet there's no more quiet time anymore media is there all the time it's such a big presence so i mean like the great thing about an about an op-ed or any kind of opinion person is they help you they give you a way of organizing that information mm. Um, which is a natural human reflex. I can't take nine hours a day. I think the average figure in Britain now is nine hours a day of media consumption. It's a lot. It's eh? a lot. It's a lot. And so, um, like I'm, I can't take raw data that whole time. I need a, sure. I need stories. And I need way meta stories, which is kind of what the op-ed stuff is. Um, so I think it all has a place. Clearly, you know, it is um, it is a way of. I mean. You know, the, the biggest problem I think documented right now with democracy these days is, you know, the the echo chambers, mm-hmm. um, the um, and I'm not sure that any one media institution is ever going to undo some of those pressures of of culture and class um, and self-interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's the gone are the days you're going to have three television networks that can present you know, like in the U.S., one particular story and try to be, I mean, whether liberal elite consensus or not. Um, you know, probably in the end, it's now downloaded. The, the role has been downloaded to the citizen to try to figure it out and hopefully make their own judgments about which media outlets are the, are the least polluted or can help them navigate as best they can yeah. a really complicated world. It is very complicated. Um, I had a question on the tip of my tongue, but it'll it'll, it'll come back to me. Um, oh yes, this was it. Um, Facebook, mm-hmm. good, bad for, for, for journalism, for media news. Uh, I think it's good for clicks, obviously. Um, I do believe with friends of mine here in the business that ultimately paywalls are the best thing for newspapers in the long term. Okay. And that, so if it's a way of enticing the casual reader in, mm-hmm. I mean, most of the studies I've ever seen on news consumers are that, you know, there is a chunk of the population who are news consumers. Um, and it's you're no, there's a chunk that will probably never be converted into being news consumers or at least paying news consumers. Sure. Um, so, I, you know, I think that 
I mean, the stuff that is super toxic about Facebook, and I've been caught in it. I mean, I've reposted stuff that I found out later was fake. And I'm, I think of myself as a fairly sophisticated news person. Yeah. And it was when, you know, I, I it was like, oh, that's wrong. Shit. I'm an idiot. <laughs> and I just made myself an idiot in front of my mostly journalist friends on Facebook. Um, so, it, you know, it's that that part of it is 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 really frightening and, and you know when you see how precisely targetable we all are by our prejudices and our psychographics and how we can be manipulated mm-hmm. um, you know it's just another thing unfortunately i don't think any one institution's going to solve it it's just something we as citizens have to be super wary of yeah one of the more most popular shows uh, in canada um, i don't know Recent, I don't know now, but in, in recent memories, Dragon's Den. Yeah. 2006, you helped launch it yeah. at the CBC. Tell, tell me about that. Tell me about, um, I th- was it a Japanese show originally? Yeah, it was originally um, it was the early days of TV formats. And someone from the BBC had seen at a TV conference uh, a mildly successful Japanese late night show, mm-hmm. um, which was shot in kind of like kind of grim strip mall type offices where mostly young women mm-hmm. um, cried and pleaded for money from a bunch of guys who looked like they were Yakuza. And huh. it wasn't really about business. It was more like loan sharking. And, oh, wow. And um, the British, probably to their regret, and I've talked to the executive because they didn't know they could just go and, because they wanted to make it about real business. They thought, oh, what if that was actually real business ideas they were asking yeah. for? And um, so they created the show, essentially the show that we have now, uh, Dragon's Den. And it had been adapted quick. It, was, it had been a, uh, successful in the UK. They had tried it in a number of other countries where it had failed. So in the mm. format business, it's deemed to be a dead format. Okay. Because a successful format is one that's been reproduced. In multiple, it's like science. Can they be re, can the experiment be, re, be reproduced? Mm-hmm. So idle, hugely successful format. Many yes. many countries, even if they had adapt it, like in Germany, it's DSS Deutschen Zucken Superstar, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but it's like essentially the same, the thing. same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mad, wildly successful show, top model, America's top model, big show in Germany mm-hmm. as well. For example, of a market where it gets translated. Um, so we took it. CBC had. The current, the president at the time had promised before Parliament that CBC would never stoop so low as to engage in vulgar reality programming, and he left. <laughs> New president came in, and within like a week, what do we got? And they, someone at CBC had optioned this. Okay. Um, and they said, let's put it into production for September. Wow. And um, I was on staff. I was a producer in the news department. I mm-hmm. just. Um, I had a show called CBC News Sunday, which was a two-hour news and documentary show. Um, I was on a hiatus from that and was doing, just done a documentary on the tsunami and the bird flu for Fifth Estate. And um, they asked me to, to take it on. And um, it was, um, you know, no one thought it was going to be successful. In fact, I remember after the first show went to air, yeah. a news colleague of mine who'd never liked me, uh, looked at me in the elevator and said, your career is finished. Because <laughs> the Globe had run not one, not two, but four negative articles in the space of the two weeks. Basically, CBC should never be doing reality programming. Uh-huh. If they're going to do it, it can't be as stupid as this show. And it was just like almost out of the way to just sink it. And it spoke to 
elite consensus because basically everyone at CBC thought it was a stupid idea. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 fellow travelers at the Globe Culture section thought it was a disaster. Yeah. Um, and uh, thankfully, nothing else that season did very well at CBC. We did six episodes, and um, the bosses at CBC were um, looked at the the demo, and although our audience was not huge, it was very young, which was unusual. Huh. So actually, like, if you don't know the TV business, the your actual total viewers mean nothing for a commercial network. Okay. It's all your viewers in the demo. Ah. So everything is, depending on your demo, it's um, 18 to 49 or 25 to 54. Mm-hmm. It's men and women. So if you're a channel that's aimed at women, you only sell the women, say, 18 to 49. So you have a million men watching the show. doesn't matter. On that channel, it means nothing. Mm. Zero dollars for you. So in the demo, we were actually pretty good. Our two-plus number, so total people two and over, wasn't very good. But we had this very solid number in the demo, young people, mm-hmm. which they weren't selling. They were so young, they weren't. CBC wasn't selling them. Okay. CBC traditionally was selling twenty five fifty four, and we had a big audience of teens and early twenties. Interesting. So CBC, said, well, let's give it a try again for a second season. Yeah. And it popped. I think the last show of the second season, we were starting to see consistently like strong, strong numbers. Mm-hmm. And by the time that I left. We were averaging two million viewers a show, which is a lot uh, in Canadian television. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was the most highly rated Canadian produced show at the time, uh, consistently of a multi, like a full season show. Yeah, and um, and it has just run forever. I mean, there was a time uh, a few years ago, CBC was running it Monday to Friday during the day. It was running in overnights, like at three in the morning. And it was repeating the Wednesday night first airing on Sunday nights in primetime. So it was just... It's always it, on. And it was making the money every time it aired. Wow. Um, so I mean, that was really the goal. I mean, to the credit of the, the, the people who commissioned it, the goal was to say, look, we, if we're going to do reality programming, let's make it so that we can um, make money off it. Sure. And it can drive audiences to our other shows. Yeah. And that was really the goal of it. And that was sort of... I went in with that spirit. You know, I, I said, well, if we're going to make it really good, we've got a signal to viewers this isn't isn't like another cbc show so we should license a really cool song because music is a really good signifier so and they said well what do you want i said well there's a, an oasis track you know put your money where your mouth is mm-hmm. it wasn't a big hit of theirs but it really no. like sounded great and i remember like it just kind of had that kind of blaring sound you know at that time it's like really signaling mm-hmm. this is not regular cbc no <laughs> This is not the Degrassi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that was actually that was CTV, but yes, exactly. Yeah, but it was more, this is not Suzuki. I think Suzuki. <laughs> yeah, yeah. More of it, yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, not that there's anything wrong with David Suzuki. No, no, no. But there, there was. I mean, I think stars got created. Huge stars. Out, out of huge, that show, huge um, stars. you know, I you know Kevin o, Kevin O'Leary being yeah. probably the one. Yeah, um, who's gone on to fame down in the states? Yeah. Still doing the same huge, same sort of show. Um, were Were you one of the people that was sort of okay? Which Which entrepreneurs, which business people should we have on? That was the whole. That was really what I did. Like the, was part of that process with a number of other very gifted producers. But yeah, it was. We were given the time by CBC. Mm-hmm. We interviewed and brought into studio seventy five. Canadian multimillionaires and tried them in different combinations until we picked our five. And it was a blessing that CBC gave us that time because we found the finally found the right panel right near the end. 
Um, what was it about Kevin? Kevin is a, what he made me realize is that a lot of prejudices that people have about business who work in the arts, and I would count myself as one of them at the time, is they don't understand the intense creativity, uh, ego, and sheer fun that an entrepreneur brings to their day game. Hmm. At the time, things have changed in the culture, but certainly in Canada back in whenever, 2006, you know, 12 years ago, um, business was seen as like you worked for CN or CIBC. Again, mm-hmm. nothing wrong with those companies, but bland, large corporations, mm-hmm. you know, um, and the idea of being kind of a, a master of creative destruction and <laughs> that stuff was um, kind of new to the culture. And um, there is a, he's a, he is one of the most, I mean, one of our producers, I remember her, uh, uh, saying it was early on saying you know you look at Kevin there's not much there but once he starts talking it's panties off and uh, it's just that <laughs> intelligence and verbal facility yeah uh, that is intensely charming and um, it just there's um, Mayor Lawrence Olivier said that uh, only bad actors fear appearing on stage with children and animals hmm. because bad actors with the cat and the the child can, will do something so the audience's eyes are always going towards it. A yeah. good actor knows how to be so so surprising uh, that they can draw all the focus. Nice. Um, and Kevin's that person. I mean, in a room, you're just drawn to him, even when he's not saying anything. Yeah. And Gord Downey was like that, too, uh, very much. I mean, Gord's, I mean, uh, his live performances. Uh, oh, for sure. All the ones I ever eyes. saw, you just can't take your eye off. And what is no. that? It's charisma. It's you know it factor I mean it's calculated with you know Kevin in his way was as much of a is as much of a performer as Gord was Um, but um, you know it's that combination of skill and practice and natural facility that is when you see it you see it I mean Kevin was like the moment we we it was really kind of once we saw him it was like okay well who do we put around him Mm -hmm. what did did you think when he when he said I'm going to run for the Leadership and, and the Prime Minister of Canada. I worried that I would be saying penance to my Toronto media elite friends for the rest of my career. <laughs> you <laughs> having... created the monster. <laughs> I actually appeared on CBC Radio. Brent Bambury, who'd been a host on Midday when I worked way back then, okay, yeah. called me up and said, I know, I know. He's had a great radio show on CBC. And he called me up and said, I was in London for something. He called me up and got me on to basically explain myself for CBC audiences. <laughs> and, I mean, the thing I said to him, which I would say now, is that Kevin is not who he plays on TV. He is an intensely decent, moral person. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think the limitations of his particular set of experiences towards national leadership, particularly with as it comes to French, mm-hmm. were very evident. Um but in a lot of ways, the country could do a lot worse. I mean, he is a extremely principled, smart, opportunistic, and I think I mean that in the best sense. Like mm. he is quite keen to shift his uh, opinions when the facts change, as it were. Okay. Uh, not he's not an ideologue by any means. Uh, so uh, you know, um, I as I said, I'm glad that I can still eat out in Toronto and not get hissed <laughs> at. Well, the. Um the, the, I don't know if chemistry is the right word, but um, the the bickering that him and oh, I can't remember her name now, who was on um, Arlene Arlene Dickinson, yeah. was that was that real? Was that an act? A little bit of both. Yeah, I think it's as real as it was. I mean, certainly, um, 
But everyone knew, I mean, Arlene came on second season. Yeah. So she'd watched the show, and Arlene is also very smart, mm-hmm. and she knew what she had to play off against. And Okay. I mean, I did. I mean, hope Brett won't mind me saying this, but I mean, I when Brett came on in season three, mm-hmm. see season three, Brett Wilson, was, yeah. yeah, season three, I actually went out to Calgary. We rehearsed. I said, "There's going to be a moment where you have to play the white hat to Kevin's black hat." Okay. And we rehearsed what that would be, and I remember how it came. It was so beautiful. If you're a fan of the show, there was a, a moment in season three when um, these women had come on, and they were. Um, proposing a large investment for something that would be essentially a version of Cirque du Soleil, kind of a low-budget Cirque du Soleil. Okay. And they were dancing from the ribbons and everything, and it was not going well. Kevin was really kind of oh, ripping no. into them. And uh, <laughs> she started crying, and he looked at her and he said, listen to me, honey. Probably didn't say honey, but anyway, that was the tone. Listen to me. Your tears add no value. Oh, no. And it was so delicious. Oh, and it was no. And while she's crying, you know, camera cut to Brett, I'll give you the money. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a great moment, very defining in their relationship. And they've, you know, they're quite close friends and business partners. Yeah. But Brett had, uh, did have and does have a sort of um, uh, kind of a larger view of the role of of an angel investor. And Kevin's whole thing is you got to learn the tough knocks early. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're not doing anyone any favors. Um, and Brett, you know, Brett comes, I mean, he'll, in his personal story, I mean, Brett grew up, you know, materially challenged, I would say, mm-hmm. in the prairies. And I think he, he has a lot more empathy for people who are starting from really from nothing. Yeah. Uh, but so that, all that stuff was real. But again, they're all super savvy people. And once that, by the time by season three, season four, World Run, they had a good thing going. They knew it. They knew it. Nice. You ended up working with the, the famous or infamous Mark Burnett, mm-hmm. um, who's who's done. I don't know if he's considered like the king of reality TV mm-hmm. um, down in the states. Um, but what did you guys do together? What did you learn from him? Well, we did um, Shark Tank, so I was down there for the startup of Shark Tank. Okay. Um, and Mark, I would say, this is very, he's a Brit, obviously. And you look at people he works with. He often brings people from outside the states to work on his shows. And I remember the U.S. casting person called me up, and they were originally going to adapt Shark Tank. And they had basically taken our show and pitched it to ABC and said, we'll get better. Well, they pe- took your talent. Well, no, <laughs> this was before they got the talent. They, okay. were, they weren't going to take our – and they said, we'll find better people because it's the states. They're amazing people in the states. Yeah. Like, you know, Canadians. Sure. Not, not their state. And then I went down to L.A. and I was like – like you know how good these guys are they've been doing it now for four years it was four years at that time maybe um it's like they could kill this show we just take the entire cast and go do it right now and it'd be killer and oh we're gonna get amazing people get amazing people and you know in the end they took two of the cast members yeah um and you think about it with a big country like the united states and they had a lot of big names who wanted to be on the show even before it was a proven concept um, and look at those like people like Mark Cuban, for example. I mean, these are like super famous, like mm-hmm. you know, who see now what the forum gives them. But you know, Mark went with his gut about these unknown Canadians mm-hmm. being something fresh that people would want to see. Um, I did some development work with his company um, for shows that never went anywhere, and then okay. we did do one show a couple years ago now that's on the air, which we developed, which was um, another business format. Uh, we piloted up here for CTV, 
and unfortunately CBC did not pick up the option, but ABC did. Mm -hmm. So it's called uh, Steve Harvey's Thunderdome. Uh, yeah. It's a kind of crowd-funded reality show hosted by the ubiquitous Steve Harvey. Yeah. And um, again, one of the formats, like not many new formats have done well. A lot of formats have been uh, died off very quickly in the mm. last number of years, and that show did connect. So uh, that was an interesting process to see again. And he tends to have a very strong sense of of talent and working with them and um, uh, and, in, and believes in them and invests in them. And, it was, and a lot of the people who work with Mark have been around since Survivor days. Actually, before that, he did a show called Eco Challenge, which is really how he made his bones. Okay. Um, and his he was a very smart he, he is and a very smart business person and he the eco challenge show he was able to get big sponsors on to fork over the entire production budget and then some wow. and the famous story with survivor is after season one it was the most highly rated show on american television but cbs was terrified to renew it because burnett personally owned a good chunk of the ad and sponsorship dollars so if they renewed oh. it burnett would get about a billion dollars so the head of CBS said, look, we really want to renew, but we have to renegotiate this contract because our, our shareholders will kill us. Yeah. Uh, he did renegotiate, but he still kept a big chunk of it. And look, Survivor's been running it's since. It's still playing. It's still on. Still does incredible numbers. And it's one of those formats that I think, you know, look, I mean, they, they managed to kill off Idol. So I, I was going to say, like, there's some that you can't kill. Mm -hmm. they have, they've got good producers and they've kept it. They've, they've renewed it enough. To keep it going, and you know, new people discover it all the time. It's not just people who started watching it back in 2000. I'm gonna say it was 2001. Been on forever. Yeah, maybe 17 years. But um, uh, no, very, um, very smart people, and uh, you know th that. Yeah, in in whatever you think of some of those shows, mm -hmm. um, as a popular entertainer, it's extraordinary success. It's extraordinary. Did he also do The Apprentice? Yes, that was his as well, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Has he ever spilled secrets? Well, I met the guy who did, <laughs> actually did The Apprentice, and he had connected with Trump, and it was a Friday night, and he, Burnett had the idea, and he contacted this guy and said, look, I just want you to go away for the weekend and design a show which would be like the most hellacious job interview ever. Design a format. I'm going to pitch it to the networks next week. So this guy, he was like one of the 20-somethings in the office, yeah. went away and basically wrote up the whole format You're of The Apprentice. Down to the, down to the challenges, which they still use to this day when you adapt the format in different countries. Like the, there's a coffee, like selling like coffee cart challenge. And, yeah. and just nailed it out of the gate. But Burnett's genius was the show idea, the most hellacious job interview ever, yeah. and that Donald Trump was the perfect guy to play it. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if there's any particular order, but I want I want to talk about um, a, a few projects recently that you've worked on. Um, let's talk about becoming Canadian. Yes, that was um, a twenty Canada one fifty yeah project we did, and it was really I'm so glad CBC supported it because it's something that I really you know it's the one thing that we stand out for from other countries in the world that we are welcoming immigrants and mm -hmm. we are doing a. We are not just welcoming them, but we're helping. We're doing a better job of integrating them. Not mm -hmm. perfect by any means. And it's a really sweet series. We just went to citizenship ceremonies, and we asked people, how'd you get here? And you heard... stories about coming to Canada. Yeah. And just like the most amazing stories. I mean, some were kind of sweet. Some were funny. Some were unbelievably harrowing. And mm -hmm. then you kind of cut back to them saying the oath. And you realize that's why that's why they're crying. <laughs> mm. You know, this, this is the journey they went on with their lives. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, you also did Spurred On, which is the... 
I, it was a joint project between with New Zealand. Yeah. New Zealand, yeah, Passchendaele. Yeah, so I've um, uh, it was really I worked extensively with um, uh, uh, writer performer uh, R. H. Thompson, Robert Thompson, and mm. uh, uh, this is a project we had done a, a smaller film on World War One back when I was at the National, and it was one of these things that kind of came in. I got uh, contacted. There was some money available to commemorate the Battle of Passchendaele. And I knew that Robert had lost an uncle there, and he'd been very close. Oh. And, you know, the it's so far back in memory now, I mean, uh, more than 100 years now. But, um, you know, the cost to a small country like Canada at the time of dead, like forgetting, like they were, of the, I think there were four, a little over 400,000. My figures are a little bit wrong, but the proportions are right. A little over 400,000 Canadians went over in uniform. Uh, during the First World War, mm -hmm. more than half of them were casualties. Wow. That's sort of a country of 10 million people. So you're actually approaching, in terms of deaths and wounded, something like what, ha what, like what Syria has just gone through in the last seven years, mm. proportionately. With 22 million people in Syria, and about half a million have been killed. Now, there's lots of horrible things going on in Syria. Sure, on sure, top sure. of that, but in terms of young men, yeah, uh, it was a catastrophe. And mm -hmm. it's... And what often was happened is like they get written out of the history books. They didn't have kids, many of them. Uh, but Robert lost a number of his uncles, his uh, and uh, his great uncles, and because of that, it just it destroyed his family in many ways. Wow. And um, he'd written about it extensively, done a play about it, and so we just this beautiful little documentary. It's online if anyone wants to see it. Where we um, were lucky enough because of this fund to go back, and Robert went to f no one in his family had ever found where this young man had been buried. Oh wow! And he was able to reconstruct through maps at the time. I mean, the 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 carnage in that section of Belgium is even at this point almost impossible to imagine. I mean, the ground was just like every patch of ground there was hit by a shell maybe a dozen times over the course of a few months. Mm -hmm. um, like to this day, farmers have metal um, uh, plates on the bottom of their tractors because they're constantly hitting. Still to this day. To this day. And you, if you walk in the farmer's fields, you just, and Robert does, you just bend down, you can pick up shell fragments, bullets, bits of uniforms. Wow. I mean, it's just, it's extraordinary. And, you know, largely forgotten because, I mean, we almost forgot why we fought that. Why were we fighting with the Kaiser? Who was the Kaiser? You yeah. Know, but. Um, Literally, yeah, over 100 years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, the beautiful film. I was really glad to tell that story with him because he's, he's a real poet. And really, we did figure out where his. Uh, where he believes his uncle was buried, basically it was. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we found the spot. It's underneath. It's in a farmer's field, uh, but, like an unmarked grave. Or? Yeah, unmarked grave, and uh, but it's. Um, uh, we were able to figure it out using the old German maps, actually. Wow. Um, where where he was buried? So there was also a Hollywood movie made by. Um, oh my goodness! Was that Canadian actor? Passchendaele. Yeah, yeah. Passchendaele, right? Yeah, Paul Gross. Paul yeah. Gross. Yeah, yeah. No, Passchendaele was an extremely important. People talk a lot about Vimy, but That's right. Passchendaele was uh, an extremely important battle. In many ways, militarily, also kind of insignificant, like a lot of these battles were. But mm. in terms of the cost, in terms of lives, uh, you know, probably much more important than Vimy was. Yeah. So recently, when we met the first time. Yeah. Um, I found out that you were, were producing The Secret Path and mm -hmm. you were also working on the Wenjack Downey Fund. Yeah. Um, how did you become involved with that? 
Um, so I, my first, second job was CBC. Mm-hmm. So after midday, I went to work for Venture. Mm-hmm. And my desk mate mm-hmm. was Gord's brother, Mike. Yeah. Uh, and it was one of these, a little bit of a Hunger Games scenario. And they only had one full-time job. And they told us oh. we were all, we were both part-time. <laughs> yeah. And until they decided one of us would get hired. Yeah. And Mike tells the story that I went out for him at lunch and said, you know, you're a nice guy after we heard this. You're a nice guy, I think, but like, I just came back from a war zone and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I'm getting this job. <laughs> Mike was like, what an asshole. I'm going to undermine you. <laughs> um, anyway, we, we were both good enough that they actually ended up giving us the, both jobs, so we worked together. And, nice. um, and I remember like, it was shortly after that like, Gord came by the office. Mike and Gord mm-hmm. grew up like, not just grew up together, they shared a room together, they went to college, university, and were very close, and Gord came by, and we did a little walk around the CBC. So I had known Mike and his relationship with Gord and that for that story really from that time. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, basically I was just really um, glad to be involved. I mean, uh, you know, Gord and Mike have a company that they founded, um, and they were – developing a project and you know my role I came in after they'd Gord had already written the album and um Jeff Lemire had already done the book and we were talking about doing a film and you know if you ever as a producer if anyone's Mm -hmm. listening out there as a producer who's feeling like they don't get a fair shake from Canadian broadcasters or funding agencies Mm -hmm. my story to add to that experience is we went with after Gord had been diagnosed as being sick so everyone knew he was dying Mm -hmm. National treasure. Mm-hmm. Incredible Jeff Lemire, Governor General's award-winning novelist. Incredible album from Gord. Uh, and door after door slammed in our face. You're kidding me. <laughs> it was really incredible. And I I don't, like, I'm that not That must have been shocking. Well, and basically, so Gordon, Mike just stopped. They were, and Sarah Pauly was working with us, too. So literally, Sarah Pauly, Gord Downey. Yeah incredible project and it's like well you know we're really busy lots of things on the go we're not really sure this is going to sustain a full film and um wow uh so i my basically the one thing i did do was be the asshole and i uh to this day there's a couple people in the you're the the bad cop in the funding world who's just like you're the asshole because i basically you know as the expression goes called the spade a shovel i said like i'm picking up the phone and saying gord is dying and you're telling me you're like like one of these funding agencies was gone for two months, like in France. Like they're all like off at a conference and stuff, and they wouldn't get back to us. I said, "Well, like he's not going to live. Like we need to finish this project now. You need to make a decision." And then finally, this, this person called back from the agency, which I will not describe their name, but said, um, "Listen, you know we're in the business of making high quality work. Okay, like I know you come from like a, the quick, quick and dirty television world, but we're, that's not our business." And, and then this agency, even after we, we, CBC was amazing. We finally walked into CBC after disentangling it from this other place and they bought it in the room. In fact, at one point I would look at like Mike and Sarah and say, okay, you can stop now. They were so got it was to buy, buy uh, we're, we're, we'll take the project. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but then this other funny agency called up the CBC to say that we didn't know what we were doing and it was, they're making what? a huge mistake. So, you know. I absolutely believe, like, don't get me wrong, I got white male privilege up the yin-yang and all sorts of huge advantages. Mm. But even with that, sometimes the system is, in Canada, is filled with um, funny blocks. 
Hmm. You know, which I don't really know how to describe another way that it doesn't, uh, it's, is it merit-based or is it, what is it? But that one in particular, like I've had some projects funded that maybe shouldn't have been funded over other things. Sure. Over my length of my career. But like this was such a clearly a story that needed to be told and um, that Canadians were going to respond to and they did. I mean, it was mm-hmm. like, Reception was as it was timing was one fifty. Yeah, no, really, it was really exceptional in so many ways. And um, anyway, the uh, yeah, I mean that project. So we finished the animated film. So that was really my role. And then I worked with Mike and Gore to design the live shows that we did. We did shows in Ottawa, uh, Toronto, and Halifax. Mm-hmm. And then Gore got too sick, so Halifax was the last live show that he did ever. Yeah. Um, and then. Um, Worked with Mike and Gord and uh, another friend of mine, Ian Capstick, and with uh, an incredible collection of indigenous leaders who became our advisory circle to uh, begin a um, uh, fund mm-hmm. dedicated to sort of people who were touched by the story that Gord was telling. And if you're mm-hmm. not familiar with it, it's about um, uh, a boy who died now 52 years ago this October. Um, he was one of them hundreds of thousands of indigenous children who were taken away by force from their parents Mm -hmm. uh, at great distances to schools to basically have the Indian beaten out of them by the government. Yeah. And um, he wanted to go home, like almost every kid did. Sure. And he tried to walk 600 kilometers home, and he died on the way. Uh, And a lot of people who did not know this story, that the last, as Grand Chief Alvin Fiddler says, like the last residential school closed in 1996. So we're not Not talking ancient history here. No. Um, and when you talk about the impact that generations of this like policy had on what it does to a family unit, to culture, I mean, it's just it's appalling uh, on so many levels. And um, some people were moved by that and said, "What can we do? Like, forget mm-hmm. government, and everything else. I want as, a, as an individual make our larger society here in Canada a better place and figure a way to reach out." So that became uh, the fund, and we are now. The largest charity, private charity dedicated to uh, indigenous child welfare in the country, which is an amazing success on one hand, uh, Africa to Asia, um, you know, to Europe, but all these times, you know, and, you know, we have a situation where that, you know, the health outcomes of children to this at this day right now, there are more children right now in fo- indigenous children in foster care in Canada. Then we're in the entire residential school program. The whole, what, mm. so like, the the issue goes on. It's still a problem. And so you know, you know, the government primarily through and the crown through treaties has an obligation, and indigenous communities are doing incredible work to do stuff. But it does, I think, that what the what what the the charity can do most profoundly is mobilize the conversation and let. Our indigenous brothers and sisters know that we're their allies, mm-hmm. in in a lot of small ways and some bigger ways, but I think and that's been, you know, for me extremely humbling, and the generosity that we've been accepted by the Wenjack family to mm. allow us to tell their story, to allow Gord to tell us their story in particular, uh, has been, um, yeah, there's no other word for it. It's just been humbling and gratifying, and there's so much work left to do. I asked Mike this question um, about do you ever get pushback, whether it's from yourself thinking in your own head um, or from 
um, other First Nations or Indigenous communities about, you know, well, here comes another white savior trying, trying to save us, trying to tell us what we need. Uh, I'm, I'm curious whether you have those discussions in your head or, or whether you've, you've had these um, accusations thrown at you from others. Oh, yeah. Um, I, all the time might be overstating it, um, but it is fraught. I mean, initially when Mike told me about the project, I said, you can't tell a story about an indigenous kid. That's not your story to tell. Mm. And Gord was adamant about it. It's like, you know what? We did this to them. It is our story too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I have at, there have been a few particular kind of crisis points. I had a friend on Facebook defriend me because she misread a comment I said. She was First Nations. I got to high school with her. Mm-hmm. And um, she was like, look at you, like trumpeting all your success and all the work you've been doing for First Nations. You know, you're, you're glad to take all that glory. And um, I tried to explain what we were doing. And I, that, that one, that hurt. I mean, probably more than anything because she was someone I'd gone to high school with. Sure. And I haven't reached out to her since. So I just let that lie. I mean, it, um, yeah. I think it is, um, it's a valid criticism. I think that anytime someone who's not from one community tries to tell the story or get involved with another community, you run that risk. Mm-hmm. I mean, what has made me, I did, so I mentioned um, Grand Chief Alvin Fiddler. So a lot, I've made a lot of indigenous friends I wouldn't have made otherwise. And so on the Facebook algorithm, talking about Facebook, um, <laughs> now like puts a lot of indigenous stories like on my feed. Yeah. Because that's what I'm liking and commenting, and there, are, you know, if you don't have a lot of indigenous friends, you may not know that, you know, indigenous communities are heavy, heavy users of social media, um, and um, I, so I'm seeing all this stuff that I wouldn't have just the day to day life, like mm-hmm. so. So Alvin Fiddler is the Grand Chief of um, Nishinaabeaski Nation, which represents most of Northern Ontario, and um, I think it's 49 communities in total, hmm. and. Um, He's at, he's at the funeral of a child a couple times a week. Wow. Um, and, you know, there are things that we read about in the papers like suicide. Mm-hmm. There's also kids who die of strep, you know, because they just have terrible health care access. And I just, I said to him at one time, I said, like, how do you do it? I mean, he's one of the most decent, com- like, compassionate, practical leaders I've ever met. Mm-hmm. And he has a lot of reason to be angry. A lot. And he said, well, you know what? I just... I work on hope that things are going to get better for my people. And it's a very, and, he, and I said, and I, you know, and he said that, you know, one of the things that the Secret Path Project and the Danny Wenjack Fund and the culture change that's happened and so many people, and, you know, so many indigenous artists now who found larger audiences in the rest of the country, that whole shift in the dialogue, I think can give, if it, if it can give a little bit of a lighter load one day out of a year, to people who are doing the real work in the country of mm-hmm. helping these communities heal, then it's valid. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. One of the this sort of relates to uh, one of the tweets I saw recently, um, where you said the cost of fixing drinking water is three point two billion. I think that was the number you used. Mm-hmm. Um, while the cost of building the oil pipeline that they're Alberta and BC are arguing about is, uh, I think the number seven point nine billion. Let's say eight billion dollars. Um, it, 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 it shocks me that there, there are people 
within the borders of Canada that don't have access to basic health care, they don't mm. have access to drinking water um, that, you know, we here in Toronto take for granted that that I would say the majority of Canadians mm. uh, take for granted um, are, are like, I don't know. Like, do you do you do you think that anything will be done in our lifetime? I don't know. You know, there's a quote from Carl Jung that seems apt, which is, this is for a psychologist, psychotherapist, when they're working with a patient. If you have a doubt about intentions, look to outcome. Hmm. If people really care about Indigenous people, we'll fix it. If you don't care, communities will continue to suffer from neglect. You know, if 20 years from now, kids are still dying because of unsafe water, that was the intention of this generation. What, no excuses. I mean, you know, forget mm -hmm. the pipeline, which is a loaded issue on water levels. Liberals burned a billion dollars on a gas plant here just outside the city to win some votes. Mm. You know, a, that could have solved the drinking water crisis for every Indigenous person in Ontario. So the money is there. What is your intention? What do you want to do with it? Um, every home makes budgets and makes priorities. Um, of course, the sadness is that the long-term cost beyond the uh, is spiritual, it's political, it's economic. That for not helping indigenous communities integrate into the 21st century with dignity and justice, mm -hmm. we are kicking a problem down the road that's going to be more costly. That's heavy. That's heavy stuff. But it's true. I think it's true. Um, I don't know how you segue over to... To talk about what you know, what you're currently doing, mm. um, but help me understand. So you've got—is—is is it the? Tell me about Antica. So when I left CBC, I started a company, mm -hmm. um, called it Antica after my two kids, Anthony and Erica. Ah. I when I went to high school in Guelph, the only person I know whose family actually owned a big company was um, a girl named Linda, whose um, parents had named their company after their daughters, Lindemar. Okay. And um, anyway, the company, she's the CEO of it. It's called Lindemar. It's worth, I don't know, billions of dollars. <laughs> um, so I thought... So your kids have their fingers crossed. I, I was like, well, I thought it was a good way to name something. Like, instead of Stuart Cox Productions, I mean, you know, it, it's also, it's good. Like, it's just, it's kind of, you know, anyway, I just, I like the... I like the fact that no one can ever pronounce it, and there's always a bit of a story. It reminds mm -hmm. me why, in theory, why I'm working. It's not just for ego, sure, uh, and to pay off my Subaru lease. But um, <laughs> you know, it's also like you know, in theory, like it's just a, you know, provide for my kids. Um, yeah. So the company right now we have um, a series of projects um, in production and development. So we've done, we have the third film that we did with Gord and Mike. Mm -hmm. Which is going to be on CBC this October, which documents the last year of Gord's life. Okay. Um, we have um, a film that we're doing, I mentioned, in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. um, and that'll be, we'll be announcing that's with a British partner and being done uh, at a Canadian network here. Um, we have a number of um, other um, music projects and development, which I'm hoping... We'll get the green light sometime sooner rather than later, mm -hmm. and I can't really talk about them, but they're um, sort of range of kind of social justice and other areas. I'm doing a film right now uh, with Tanya Talaga, who wrote Seven Fallen Feathers. Yes. Uh, directed by Jen Pademski. 
She um, just was she just won an award or she just Shaughnessy Cohen Prize. Yeah, her yeah. book is if you haven't read her book, it is obviously I'm interested in the issue, but I think even if you know nothing about the issue, it is a truly truly extraordinary book. She is a been a reporter. She's an old um, uh, university like classmate of mine, and she has been a great reporter for the Star, covering a lot of beats. Mm-hmm. And this book is really about her discovering her indigenous heritage to some degree. Well, she always knew she was indigenous, but kind of reporting on it in a different way. And yeah. um, she intersperses the report reportage on the absolutely tragic deaths, unexplained deaths and missing of seven indigenous children at a high school in Thunder Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, and she interweaves that with a bit of her own story and a bit of the um, Anishinaabe legends of the place. Okay. Um, and it's a really poetic, beautiful um, just extraordinary and um, uh, so Jen Podemski is directing that uh, and that's uh, Jen um, again amazing performer director writer I've, I did a project with her back 15 years ago mm-hmm. um, her, this, her one side of her family is Jewish and we're Auschwitz survivors so that oh. she did a film about that side of her family uh, we did about returned Auschwitz um, wow. So, um, all right. So that's those films are in production, and then I also have um, uh, a business which has been acquired by E One, which is a podcast network. Yeah. So we've got about thirty shows currently. Um, so the podcast division got purchased. Yeah. By E One. Okay. Yeah. So I run it for them still. Okay. Um, and we're really trying to leverage the um, the kind of reach that. E1 has, and if again, if you don't know E1, it is an incredible Canadian success story. Uh, grew out of a record retailer here in Ontario. All right. Yeah, Records on Wheels. Remember Records on no. Wheels? I mean, you're probably too young, but anyway, it was. <laughs> Thank uh, you. They were, uh, so yeah, they just a really great Canadian success story, and they have um, timed the evolution of the entertainment industry really well. They're a um, wildly successful global company with with titles mm-hmm. like The Walking Dead. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and uh, big operations, um, hundreds of employees in England, big head office here in Toronto, and then a big office in L.A. It's currently run by Mark Gordon, who um, uh, is one of like the biggest kingmakers in Hollywood. And uh, so we're trying to nestle the podcast division in there as a way for authentic voices. Initially it was authentic Canadian voices, but now we've been adding more people from around the world into the network. Um, so it's not just a Canadian. No, this, this, it started initially with friends of mine. Sure. And um, but now we, some of our top shows are from outside of um, mm-hmm. Canada, and really kind of trying to provide them as podcasters. As you know, I mean, you can it really just requires passion and a microphone. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the other work, I mean, there are no more than half a million shows in the iTunes store, are really about being able to come out and help someone, um, uh, you know, find their audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and then figure out ways to take what you do and either make money or help whatever the podcast does amplify your other business okay and so what we really do is try to with our podcasters work with people who have projects that um, we think can be turned into other kinds of property so we just did a 13 city music tour for one of our podcasts called new constellations tour there were 50 different artists, everyone from mm. Feist and July Talk to um, 
Let's Be Isaac, uh, Tribe Called Red, and it was a kind of um, it was a intended to be a discovery tour for new indigenous artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was produced with uh, Jarrett Martineau, who runs um, RPM Records and is an incredible sort of curator and producer. Uh, Jason Collette um, and uh, Damian Rogers, um, and uh, we helped them raise the money for 1372 or 50 artists. Those are not cheap. No. So that was really kind of what that grew. Oh, and then we did, and then we shot a film which was directed by Tracy Deer, who. Um, uh, was is the brains behind Mohawk Girls, very successful, long-running uh, series on uh, APTN, uh, and a former documentary director herself um, before she got into scripted. Um, so that was like taking a podcast and doing other things with yeah, it. Yeah, that's um, interesting. So we've been really hoping we have a couple of um, podcasts right now that are in various stages of development for TV shows. Uh, probably our best-known other shows are we have a show called Sick Boy yeah on Halifax just mm-hmm. great um, if you haven't heard it it's um, uh, really it's a comedy show about illness and where the hosts have a stake in it that's all I'll say <laughs> give it a listen it's a great show uh, CBC did a documentary about the show that was um, won the Canadian Screen Award this year actually that's right yeah I remember that um, and they do live tours across the country I think I just saw on their Twitter they're going to Squamish um, but they go all over the country Big, big fan base. Uh, we have another great show uh, that's done by a history teacher here in Toronto uh, called Our Fake History, uh, which is really just analyzes um, things you think you know about history that may or may not be true. Mm. Um, and uh, he is like the history teacher you always dreamed about having in high school that would get you excited about history. Interesting. He Interesting. deeply researches his shows and. Uh, so, um, yeah, there's a real range of, of voices. I mean, like, well, you know, I mean, you're one of them. I mean, it's people who in the olden days wouldn't maybe get access to uh, an audience because you had to have a, a basically, you had to please the power brokers. No, that's so true. Your last show reminds me of this podcast I'm a fan of now, um, The Secret History of Canada. I don't know if you. Oh, heard I've heard that. It's a great show. Yeah. Yes. You do a really good job with that they show. They do. Yeah. They yeah. do. It's really, really the one good. About, you hear the one about Banff? I thought that was a great one. That that shocked me. That was such a good one. It was really and I because I knew a little bit of that story. I and didn't I know anything. How about they're going to yeah. go? And it's just like wow. Yeah. Yeah. That just threw me because I because I'd gone to Banff mm. two March breaks ago and we're going back again in July, mm. and it's like wow, like that just floored me. Yeah. Uh, but then I think about it. I go yeah, like all these national and provincial parks. It it just makes sense that it it, it was habited before. Yeah. You know. Yeah. We just came along. It's okay. This everybody out. This is where tents are going to go now. Yeah, yeah. You know, people are going to come on vacation for a week. You're not, and you're not allowed in here. Not a, you can't. No, you, you're right. So now you can just buy a, like a ticket, a day a day use pass, and come in. You specifically can't come back. Yeah. I mean, just uh, it's yeah. crazy. It's crazy. Um, I, I want to ask you. We're we're running low low on time, but I, I want to ask you about. Um, you know the monetization. You gave examples of what 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 the um, what the Entertainment One Network is doing for some mm. of these podcasts in terms of creating new projects, monetizing extra projects outside of the actual podcast. But um, you know, for for podcasts like mine mm-hmm. um, or other sort of independent ones, like I tell people, you know, outside of the CBC, very few people are making money in podcasts uh, in Canada. Yeah. Um, is 
is there a monetization strategy? Um, should podcasters um, have a full-time job um, and, and not think about podcasts as a monetization vehicle? What, what are your thoughts on, on podcasts and monetization, specifically Canadian podcasts? Well, I don't think you should be in podcasting unless it gives you intense pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably, beyond whatever you need to make money to survive, you shouldn't do anything that <laughs> doesn't give you intense pleasure. Sure. Life is full of many choices. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, what I usually explain to people who are thinking about getting into podcasting is the basic numbers are you can't monetize less than 20,000 new listens a month. Mm-hmm. Um, of the half a million or so, and the numbers are probably a little bit changed, but last time I checked, about half a million shows in the iTunes store, which represents about 80% of all iTunes, of all podcast downloads. So all it's right. not a bad uh, indicator probably of the overall thing. So of all those shows, most of them average less than 100 downloads. Wow. So the if you're getting more than 100 downloads a month, you're mm-hmm. already in a fairly elite club mm-hmm. um i think that um the people that i have helped make money in podcasting in the last couple of years have had a um unique audience that was worth something mm-hmm. um and they monetized it not necessarily off the podcast but the podcast may give them access so for example i expect it's a little bit what you do with your business like mm-hmm. you you're able to talk to people you wouldn't necessarily get to chat with otherwise that mm-hmm. may feed your day job Fair enough. That really helps. Yeah. Um, I think there is the um, the thought leadership piece for your other business. So people may come to your show mm-hmm. uh, as fans that may then say, I want to work with you in some other capacity. Uh, and that's very important. Um, I think on the once you get a – and you can get that with 100 downloads a month. So mm-hmm. that's all fine. Um, I think at the 20,000 downloads and above – um, you're looking at CPMs. I think as as low as eight bucks. Like Audible has a deal right now where, um, like they'll pay like eight dollars CPMs, or the even the junkier ones are the conversion ones, mm-hmm. which I wouldn't recommend to any podcasters. I mean, it's not worth your time. Yeah. I mean, if you know, you know, you'll get paid, you know, twenty five bucks to sell a mattress for Casper, <laughs> um, and you know, it really, is it worth like? It may take you two months to sell one because someone's going to remember the code when they get to the no, site. No, that's right. You know, it's like, oh, was it like, you know, oh, that's how I remember it, uh, uh, .50, or was it, you know, no one remembers. So <laughs> so you may be actually be doing great jobs for their conversion, but you're basically giving away free advertising. Yeah. Um, unless it's like a friend's company. Like sure. At your loyal Canadian, you want to support Endy, for example, a mm-hmm. Canadian company. They have a conversion. They have a, a, that kind of a metric. Um, what you what – you, um, there are companies um, – there's a company now that um, uh, a couple in Toronto that will do bulk sales. We were on that, that panel. Where That's I'm right. Together. Yeah. I feel like that is a bit of, like, I think it's, look, if I were a big U.S. podcaster selling into the Canadian market, I'd probably take that money because let's say I'm getting a million downloads a, a month and I'm, and most of my American advertisers don't want my Canadian audience anymore. I'll just take whatever money I can get for it. Sure. I think if you're a Canadian podcaster, you don't the the problem with uh, programmatic advertising is it becomes like every other bit of junk you see on the internet. 
And I, I think you actively start to hate those companies that are interfering with your mm. access to your content. Um, and the end, the, so you want to go host red because the studies show people who uh, are very likely to buy things referred to them by a host if they believe that host. And they also True. value the advertiser on the podcast because they believe, rightly so, that that podcaster is supporting, without that podcaster support, maybe this, without the advertiser support of the podcaster, they might not be able to continue. Mm -hmm. um, so it's making content valuable that they value available to them so they are, have a good feeling about the brand. Um, but even at you know a, a good CPM, like let's say 45 to $60 CPMs, which are not unheard of at all in Canada, we're getting them for our podcasters. But um, you're, um, you, have to, you have to get a lot of downloads. Yeah. By the time you pay your agency fees and other things to really start to make serious money and to quit your job, um, I think you know even of our most successful podcasts. I mean, we're probably paying the rent outside of Toronto for some of them. Mm -hmm. um, some months we're paying maybe for a trip to Jamaica on top of that. Um, nice, <laughs> but it's um, it depends on the campaign too. I mean, you don't sure. always sell every month. We usually sell out our inventory right now. We found that advertisers are coming to us now, and so most months we're sold. Mm -hmm. But then, but there are some shows that advertisers won't touch. So you know, true crime is hugely popular, but not every advertiser wants to be on true crime true. shows. So your genre may rule you out. Um, I think that if you like the model of uh, a CPM model, if you got it, great. I think a um, if a brand will approach you and um, underwrite your whole podcast because they just like your niche audience. Mm -hmm. That's great. Better money usually. Sure. Uh, but the big one that we're focusing on is the taking what you can create in a podcast environment and making that into another kind of product and making money off that. And that's you know basically a TV show or a movie. And there are lots and lots of examples of that. I think that way more so than YouTube because podcasting is essentially a writer's medium and television is a writer's medium mm -hmm. fundamentally yeah and the people on youtube is basically a, it's a star medium there on youtube um, but they're, they're youtube stars they're not tv stars and they don't necessarily have the production savvy to go and translate that's why there have been so few shows from youtube going to tv but lots and lots and lots of podcasts going to tv going to tv that's so true that's so true. Stuart, thanks so much for your time thank you before i let you go i want to uh, let people know where they can find more stuff uh, about this podcast and about you. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. You can uh, find out uh, more uh, information about what we're doing here at the podcast at kareemkanji.com slash subscribe. So whether you uh, use an Apple, Android, or desktop to listen to your podcast, you'll be able to find this one. Uh, you can also check out girthradio.com uh, for more awesome uh, audio programs as well. And if you're on Twitter, at Kareem Kanji. Stuart, where, if people want to know more about what you're up to and what you're doing, where could they go? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Stuart Cox, uh, S-T-U-A-R-T-C-O-X-E. Uh, and my company's name is AnticaProductions.com. Awesome. And if you like this conversation, go check out episode 62 with Brett Wilson and episode 88 with Mike Downey. Again, Stuart, thanks so much. Total pleasure.